my roommate and I have what could be described as a worrying amount of knowledge about poison. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I'll be your host today, Mark. Today, we're going to be talking about some of our recent favorite nonfiction titles in very niche subject area. So don't expect any Malcolm Gladwells or celebrity biographies here. And we're going to be talking about some some things you may not have heard of before, maybe some subjects that you've never even knew was like an object of study or some interesting historical figures you haven't heard of before. Sometimes we find these things by coincidence, or it could be our favorite niche subject that you want to know more about. So some of our nonfiction books today are going to be kind of along those directions. And whether it's by an academic press, a niche local publisher, or like a mid-sized kind of popular publisher, there's always a particular audience for all these different books. So to start today, how about we go to Virginia? As many of my book friends know, I'm not a big nonfiction reader. However, I would say if I were to read a nonfiction, it is likely going to be about some weird specific thing that only I care about. And maybe this one other person who has written a book about it. So I would say probably niche nonfiction is kind of like the type of nonfiction that I would generally read. And I'm really actually quite excited about my book today because it gave me a chance to check off another title from this author's backlist. Now, we have talked about this author before on this show, Gabriel talked about Horror Store, my favorite Akira-inspired horror book. And I think Liz might have mentioned the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires in one of the episodes. So I'm, of course, talking about Grady Hendrix, a pretty popular contemporary horror author. One of his books, My Best Friend's Exorcism, has also been recently made into a movie on a streaming service. So you can also go watch that. And it's very clear that he's not just a writer of the genre, but he's also a big fan himself. And so he has written sort of a love letter to his favorite genre. And this is Paperbacks from Hell, The Twisted History of 70s and 80s Horror Fiction. Now, if you are a horror fan and if you love horror, this is pure delight. You're going to want to spend hours and hours just pouring over every single detail in this book. But I would say even if you don't really read a lot of horror, I think if you love books, this is also really, really interesting read because you can see how a genre develops and you can just see the trends and, and how it evolves. You know, the writers, the the illustrators, you know, the publishers, like how all of them come together to create a genre. So I think even if you're interested just in books, it is a really, really fun read. But I think if you're interested in none of that, this book is still going to be worth your time because if you just want to flip through hundreds and hundreds of these amazing and amazingly bad covers, just to look at that is totally worth it. And every single time you read something, like I, I, 
I don't know how many times I've turned around to say to my husband, hey, hey, listen to this. And I'm like describing the plot or like, you know, showing him a cover. And he cares nothing about horror. But it's just, it's one of these books that just begs you to share with someone because it is just so funny in so many ways. And as you can imagine, books written in like 70s, 80s, 40 or 50 years ago from uh, our 2022 point of view, they're going to be um, questionable in many cases. Um, a lot of the, um, the subject matters, um, you know, you're just going to be like, what is happening? So be warned that you're going to see a lot of things in there that might be slightly offensive because I don't think those are stuff that you should say and these days. Anyway, um, so how this all got started, how Grady Hendrix decided to write this book, Paperbacks from Hell, is because at one of a science fiction convention, he was just browsing through all the books that were there on display, and he saw this one book. This is The Little People by John Christopher. And if you're listening to this podcast, go Google the cover, not the cover that they have now, which is just this generic black and white stock photo of a castle, but Google the original cover. Oh, no, indeed, Fiona. This is, this is a book about Bridget Chauncey, who has inherited an Irish castle from some distant relative. She's engaged to some fancy pants lawyer, but she wants to show that, hey, I can also make a living. I can also support myself. So she decided to turn this castle that she inherited into a bed and breakfast. It's open in day. Everything is going well. There's quite a few reservations. She thinks this is going to work. Ha, I'm going to show you, fancy fiance. But little did she know that they are guests at a castle that she didn't know about in the basement there are these the title the little people they are called the gestapo cons nazi leprechauns oh wait but they are psychic nazi leprechauns oh and of course they are bred from some horrible concentration camp experiments and they have certain hobbies they're really into SNM. <laughs> and they are, and they, as you can tell from the scars on their body. Um, and uh, they have also been trained to provide service, especially to human males. So what happens when the fiance show up at the castle? Um, this is <laughs> so if you discover this book, you've got to ask yourself this question just like Grady Hendrix says if this is that you can find in like some I don't know used bookstore in the bargain bin what other treasures quote-unquote are hidden in there and that's why he decided to go find all of them and write a book about it so paperbacks from hell takes you through the all the different trends all the different subgenres that you can find in the horror novels in the 70s and the 80s and you know Hendrix tried to like trace it back to like okay what's happened in the world at that point and how those things shape the genre like what are popular and why are they popular so what are the external factors that might impact that why is the devil so popular well in the 80s you know satanic cults everybody is worried about like rock and roll music and the metal music and D&D and everything else that is going to melt your kid's brain and turn them into zombies. Think of the children. So, of course, the devil is like super popular during that time. Well, there's also the financial crisis and inflation and everybody's worried about how am I going to find a place to live? Oh, wait, but look, look at this house on the market. It's so much cheaper than everything else. It's a 
bargain. It's too good to be true. Yes, whenever you say that to yourself, it's too good to be true. It probably is. Um, so, you know, there's a whole tons of like haunted house stories that come about. And during this time, also people are starting to pay more attention to what we're doing to the environment, all the oil spills, that's Clean Air Act. And so the first Earth Day happens. And so there's a lot more activism happening. But we're spending all this effort protecting the environment. Who is going to protect us from nature? So you got Jaws, of course, in 1974, the book, and later turned into the movie that, of course, make everybody worry about these big predators. And, you know, big predators we know, like in The Guardians, in this whole series that has all these people battling wolves and were sharks, and they have to have an army of dolphins with them to fight against these were sharks. We know about the predators, but anything could kill you. You think moths are just going to attack sweaters? Oh, no, they can devour humans too. One of my favorite, and I just think it's just like this image. Like I was just ridiculous is a book called Flashbait and it is about enraged tuna. Like I just can't, I can't, you know, I'm sure they're scary, but like, no. And of course, you know, like my favorite, again, thanks to Fiona, my favorite thing, of course, everything can kill you, including crabs. So there's a whole series about killer crabs. In the first book, they were driven away because we had poison. We have these, we poisoned them. And so they scuttled away, but then they came back. But this time, because there's all these like people who love animals and they decided that they're going to form a cult around these crabs and so they treated them as gods and they will like tie humans to like bridges so that the crabs can have snacks but that's okay because remember callback previously they have been poisoned so now they suddenly develop cancer cancer crabs and so um they all die and as brady hendrix said it proved that once again no animal can withstand humankind's pollution so Creepy children, creepy children, one of my favorite. And at that point, there's so many different laws changing about reproduction, about birth control pills and all of that. And so there's so many horror novels about like, what may happen if you have a baby? And it's hard to think of them as scary because they are usually very, very well-dressed, apparently. And even in the 40s, Ray Bradbury has written a story called The Small Assassin about a baby that came out to murder um, their parents. So yeah. Um, and if you're skeptical about like medical advances and cures, you should be. In Manitour by Graham Masterson, a woman discovered that there was a swelling on her neck. And when she go and check it out, it turns out that it's not just a swelling. Her neck is pregnant. And of course, if you see doctors and if they look like a skeleton, you know, you really shouldn't trust them because skeleton doctors are incompetent and they should immediately be turned into xylophones, according to Grady Hendrix. So you can trust nothing and everything is scary. And of course, these wonderful, wonderful stories that are just downright ridiculous. They all have the most amazing taglines, such as, Billy is so awesome, you could just die. Or, tonight, the kids are going to take care of the babysitter. If you are close enough to kiss her, you are close enough to die. Or, my favorite, nothing could save her mom from the horror, not even the magic word abracadabra so those are all like just like I, like I said you just want to look at these covers and just savor every single bit of it and 
These banana pants plots, these storylines can already make a fantastic read, but it's just the way Grady Hendrix writes about them and talk about them. It's just so tongue-in-cheek. He's so funny. And you can tell that he's just a really big fan, you know, like he's like really loved the genre, but at the same time, he's also recognizing there's a lot of issues in them and he will question them um, and he will be the first one to let you know that there's just certain things in some of the books that just too weird. Um, and I also like the fact that he give not just space to the writers, but he also give a lot of space to the illustrators and the artists that come up with these really, really amazing covers. And some of them are just really, really like they art. And he talks about how the publishers, because they don't want the illustrators to be too big, so they never put their name on the cover so that they don't have to demand like more pay or anything like that. But some of these covers are just like sort of amazing. Like this is one my one of my favorite. Um, the, I don't. Um, they actually make the artists actually make a whole sculpture just so that they can like draw the whole thing out. Like I just, it's, it's amazing. Um, and cover is everything for these paperbacks because you want to stand out among the sea of paperbacks that you see on the shelf. So the publishers try so many different things. They add foil to it. They make them holographic. Of course, the die cut cover that you will find on VC Andrews books, everything they can do to make you look at book. There are so many of them in there and they are their treasure. I spent like, this is like about 250 pages, but I spent so long reading this because they are just so amazing. Every single detail, we just need to look at this. So if you are a fan of horror books, paperback, from hell is going to exponentially increase your TBR. Not necessarily because you need these quality literature, but just the synopsis of them are so ridiculous and so messed up that you would just be desperate to find these books. And luckily for you, um, you don't have to go look too much and scour those old bookstores to hunt down these treasures because a lot of the books in here, um, Grady Andrix, after he did the book, he actually helped make a lot of these out-of-print books back in print again. So you're able to buy them um, in, you know, like on some of the online bookstores that you'll be able to find. So um, so it's it's glad to see that you can, you know, another new generation of horror horror readers can enjoy these books again. So I love this book. I had so much fun with it. And there's just so, so many great things in here. Um, so I, I hope you will also pick this up. Just just even just to flip through the covers, even if you don't care about horror. So this is Paperbacks from Hell, The Twisted History of 70s and 80s Horror Fiction by Grady Hendrix. Thank you, Virginia. It certainly was a unique collection of works. I'm sure the people are going to want to track some of those down now so they can get a better idea of just how horrifying some of those really are and give themselves some nightmares, perhaps even in the process. I will go next because Virginia just talked about a book about books. And the book I'm going to be talking about is also a kind of book about books. But it's a very different set of books because this is Atlas of the European Novel, 1800 to 1900 by Franco Moretti. Moretti is a literary theorist and scholar of the novel and the emergence of the novel as like a literary form in classical Europe. His work approaches the novel not only as like a literary or artistic work, but also as a social and historical product of its times. This sort of relates to like the emergence of particular works, authors and genres and the kinds of social contexts which they worked and their uh, novels were created in. He's taken a variety of bold and unique approaches to studying novels, from creating tree diagrams to chart the diffusion of the novel form around the world, to creating network plots of connections between characters in a work to determine the centrality of each character to the overall plot and sort of connections between the characters in the work. In more recent years, he has founded the Stanford Literary Lab, where they use large amounts of digitized works from print and digital sources to do large-scale analyses of plots, themes, and structures of works. 
recent interest has stemmed from his interest in analyzing novels outside of the canon and getting a clearer look at the totality of all the literary work, as it isn't really possible to clearly or closely read like tens of thousands of novels. Usually when you look at literary scholarship, it's just focused on like a very small number of canonical works, because in order to closely read these works, you have to spend a large amount of time. So this process he sort of refers to as distant reading, to use computational text analysis to get a more scientific view of the novel. But in this particular book, uh, Moretti was interested in using maps and charts to approach the question of how to look at books, their place of production, and comparing them across time and country to show how narratives have used geography and the movement of characters in certain places as part of their work. So he created a 100 different charts and maps that show the different literary works, as well as the sort of market and diffusion of works across Europe. He also wanted to create these maps as a way of trying to look at old and familiar works and old and familiar questions in literary scholarship in a new light. So in the past, there may be like specific ways of like analyzing the plot and characters, whereas with the, the maps, you wanted to try and create a new way of looking at things to try and produce new ideas and new questions rather than to answer a specific set of questions they had at the start. So in this work, he's very much sort of like creating and trying to develop new ideas. And his investigations are sort of broken down to three main areas, which is the nation and literature as a form, class and inequality in literature. And the third was markets for novels across Europe and the diffusion of translations and distribution of novels across Europe in this time period. So in the first of these areas, uh, nation and literature, he analyzes several authors such as Jane Austen in England uh, and compared it to the colonial lit literature of Joseph Conrad, among others, to show the spatialization of urban, rural, traditional and modern and colonizer and colonized in English novels. In Austen's novels, for example, the city and urban locations are often associated with conflict, rumors, disgrace and these types of things, whereas the fictional homes of Austen's protagonists out in the country are much the opposite. It's kind of has like this kind of dichotomy and splitting between the two types of spaces. Uh, he also notes that a commonplace kind of narrative in colonial stories, such as Joseph Conrad, where the journey always involves like landing in a port before journeying further and further inland away from like the coast towards the center of the continent. And this trek always involves things like jungles and deserts by the fact that Africa had very well-developed networks of roads and plotted areas to navigate. It's just that these well-known paths didn't serve the narrative interests of these sort of imperial and colonial kind of narratives. It sort of had to have this taming of wild lands and adventuring out into these uncharted areas, penetrating deep into the continent and sort of a romanticized kind of colonial vision of movement through the continent. And these are kind of like the two main areas they analyze this in the first section of the book. In the second section on class and inequality, Moretti asks how the different structures of cities can be represented or influence the structure of the novel. The two cities that are focused on in depth here are London and Paris. And to Moretti, the exemplary writer of London was Charles Dickens, uh, where he also makes reference to Conan Doyle and some of the other authors who wrote extensively about London, while Balzac is his exemplar of Paris with additional reference to Zola and some of the other realist novelists of the time. Through examining some of the movements of characters across locations and neighborhoods of these cities, um, Moretti compiled a number of maps and charts showing their movement throughout the city, the neighborhoods that they're in, and what kind of events occur in each of these places. He also focuses on the representation of class and class differences, as well as the sometimes total lack of representation of different social classes. For example, he sort of talks a bit about 
a genre of novels in England called Silver Fork novels, which aren't really well known anymore, but actually were quite popular for a period in the 19th century. And were essentially about these kind of semi-satirical, but also kind of um, serious representations of like a more upper class bourgeois sort of part of the city that's kind of was meant to model kind of their behaviors and patterns and things like that. Although these novels aren't very well known anymore, it's kind of interesting to see that kind of mention of a genre that no longer really exists. So I found that kind of interesting as well. So in each of these types of, uh, both in Paris and London, he sort of tries to uh, make an argument about how the city is represented in these kind of different divided and interrelating kind of ways and how that differs from the actual reality of how those cities were actually structured and were sort of understood at the time by many different people. And just in the third and final section on literary markets and sales, he sort of focuses much more on the actual books as products that were distributed throughout space and time, as opposed to like a specific kind of like artistic work with characters and plot and things like that. It utilizes aspects of political economic theory to sort of show how there's like a core set of countries that dominated the European novel market at the time that exported many of its novels and imported very few. And in this sense, we're kind of like the dominant countries of the time. I sort of compares this to the way that Hollywood movies were at the end of the 20th century into the early 21st century, how that's genres, forms, characters, and things like that were widely diffused, whereas very few other types of novels from other countries and different genres didn't get diffused quite as extensively. And he particularly focuses on France and England as the kind of core countries that exported extensively, whereas some other smaller countries such as like Romania and Poland had very little influence outside of their home markets, even though their literary works were just as developed and just as sophisticated as the ones that were present in other countries, because France and Britain had a more dominant narrative. And some of the most popular novels, such as Dumas and Hugo, were from France and other countries like that, whereas the novels of these other countries were very much ignored across the continent for the most part. So in those sort of three broad areas, I've sort of tried to just like quickly sketch out without probably any of the details, because that would take far too long to sort of get into the nitty gritty of that. I found Moretti was quite interesting in his use of charting different movements of characters, different places within the novels as a way of trying to thinking about how novels actually formed and structured, because you may not necessarily think of like the different places in a city as being important to the plot or narrative or related to anything more than just like a convenient place to place the characters. But I feel like he shows that there's actually a lot more to space and geography in literature than there has typically been recognized or you may not really think about as like a casual reader. So I found that kind of interesting to learn more about in his work. I'd also like to mention the book is published by a publisher called Verso, which is a large nonfiction publisher based in England that has produced a lot of these kinds of uh, interesting literary and political economic analyses of literature and things like that. So it's definitely a publisher that is worth checking out as well. And so if you like literary theory or just trying to think about a novel in a new and kind of unique and different way, then you may also like The Atlas of the European Novel by Franco Moretti. Okay, I think we can turn to our existential question for the day now. And I was wondering from all my book friends, if there was like one subject that you're kind of like obsessed with knowing more about, or there's something that you've always known a lot about because they have a particular interest for it or you want to know more about it what would that subject be so i'm gonna start us off with something kind of heavy i've been very interested uh lately in 
uh, learning more about enslavement through different times, like indentured servitude and serfdom, and especially this idea, this idea of the economics that rest on them, and this like justification that well, we can't give it up because then our whole economic system would be ruined, um, and that that somehow justifies people being considered less than human. Yeah, so it's a historical and and present question I'm very interested in. So sort of as evidenced by the book that I just talked about, um, I've been interested in learning more about literary history, some of the different periods of literary novels and production and things like that. So just learning more about how these novels that we sort of take for granted now as like a set kind of form with different genres and things like that, how it actually had to develop over time and how there's been these different takes on different genres and ideas across time. So that's something I've been trying to learn a little bit more about uh, recently. Octopus. There's a few fiction recently out there that is all about octopus and how smart they are. And it talks a lot about consciousness, that idea of consciousness and what does that mean. And so, yeah, like I've been dying to get my hands on some octopus books. Mine is definitely, sorry for the way that my voice sounds like, I'm trying out a new Halloween filter on it, maybe as like a creepy old witch or a Vegas showgirl. What I have been interested and obsessed with is is languages. I think it's fascinating to learn them. And it also is kind of shaking out that that cultural relativism that we all have in assumptions of how we think about the world. Something as simple as if I asked you, if you had to orient yourself within where is the future and where is the past, depending on how your language describes it, you might think of the past is behind you and you are facing forward, or you might say that the past is up here and we're going downwards through time, depending on kind of like how how your language interprets it. And I always find that absolutely fascinating just to kind of that that little shock of curiosity when you realize that something that has been so ingrained in your head of like, this is the way it is when you're like, oh no, there's a million ways to think about this and all of them interesting and all of them fascinating. And I think that that language is just such an interesting way to to learn about how other people see the world. We're a bunch of nerds. Pretty much. It's also kind of funny that Kareem mentions that because I remember when I was in undergrad learning about these wordless picture books that are presented to people and asking them to describe movement and like the positioning and like time, like the advance from like one page to the next, the way that that can be described so many different ways when there's no set way of like saying oh and, and then bunny jumped over the whatever like whatever like how you can describe it in so many different ways depending on your language or way of looking at the image yeah and like what's important in a sentence to situate someone as to where it is like does the time come at the beginning so you're like okay i'm talking about now does the action come first when i first started learning german like back in university i was like the verb comes at the end. So you have to pay attention to the entire sentence and then you finally get what's happening. But yeah, anyways, yeah, we've never denied that we're nerds. Yeah. So now we're all going to have to learn more about slavery, literary works, octopuses, and language. And we'll find a way to combine all of them into a Mad Lips category game that we're going to play sometime at Halloween or something. Make that happen in Virginia. <laughs> anyways. I think we'll move on now to Fiona. All right. Thank you. I had a lot of fun with this one. I didn't know that I was a nonfiction reader, but turns out I love it. And I actually will read about anything and 
maybe the more like specific, the better. It's just more in the writing. And I think it's just that it just has to be accessible. That's the big thing for me. So the book that I've chosen is maybe not as niche as some of the others. You have probably all heard of Catherine the Great, but uh, talking to people, a lot of people are not aware that she was a ruler in Russia. I've had a lot of people be like, oh yeah, British monarchy, interesting. No. So maybe it's a little more niche than we think. And this is a biography by Robert K. Massey, just entitled Catherine the Great, Portrait of a Woman. And though she did write her own memoir, this is sort of the standard work that people go to. And it's because it's so heavily based on her own memoir and then uh, adding letters. Uh, he does a really good job of pulling the, the primary sources. And that's probably because he, I think, believe he is a, a scholar of, of this particular family. So he's actually also written about Peter the Great and um, some other monarchs of Russia. I'll say right off the bat, the main criticism is that it's not at all critical. This is not a critical look at Catherine the Great. It's pretty much a ground level. These are the details of her life from the very start to the very finish. You now know everything about Catherine the Great without a critical eye. Obviously, there's going to be some inherent biases in there. But I actually found it a great place to start because I just feel like I have this sort of ground layer now to build on. And maybe I'll go look up some critical essays because primarily I'm interested in the subject because I'm trying to understand more about Russia right now due to the war uh, in Ukraine and sort of understand where that stemmed from. And this definitely gives you no specific ideas about that. He doesn't bridge the past and he, he very much lionizes Catherine the Great uh, in this way that I think Westerners have in the past. You know, she was an Enlightenment thinker, but it doesn't really look at her faults for, you know, creating this um, this empire with this this like need to control. But definitely an excellent read. And like I say, this this opportunity to like create a foundation for understanding uh, Russia, which I really did not have a foundation for at all. I also had been watching The Great, which is a series, a satirical series about Catherine the Great. And I enjoyed it very much. And now I hate it because I'm like, wow, where did all of this come from? This is all like just ridiculous fiction that ignores such like big giant things that would be like no problem to to interpret in fiction like the monarch when Catherine comes to Russia is actually Empress Elizabeth and that is ignored in the show so that was my biggest thing she's just sort of like the kooky aunt but it's like no she was the empress so Catherine's life in Russia begins at the age of 14 when she is spirited away for a betrothal to this weird little boy Peter the third Catherine has this incredibly ambitious social climbing mother who this is like her ideal scenario. She has always wanted, she's always kind of been above her station. She's always wanted to marry off her, uh, all of her daughters to important people. So she's very excited about this and she travels with Catherine and meddles in all of the business and takes this opportunity to sort of like um, make herself important. Catherine is a very obedient. She's actually Sophia at this point. She was born Sophia. She's quiet and obedient. And despite how strange Peter is, uh, she really works to please him and uh, really, really works to please Elizabeth, the monarch, who seems to give this motherly love that she's never received from her own mother. 
But Catherine definitely has her own ambitions. All of this uh, obedience, willingness to learn everything about Russian culture, please uh, Peter's weird obsessions with the Prussian army. Peter's super obsessed with the Prussian army and he has all of these toys that she's you know it's she's the only person that um that says sure like i'll i'll play this make-believe game with you and it's all for her own gain it's all because she she is also incredibly ambitious uh and certainly the book makes it seem like you know from a from a young age she's thinking where can this this get me so her childhood, like her or her her adolescence, I guess, uh, because she's so young when she's betrothed, is messed up. Oh my goodness! <laughs> There's definitely the beginning of the book is like a lot of like weird interpersonal like scarring experiences, and I don't doubt that that is specific to the Russian monarchy. <laughs> so Elizabeth is is very generous towards Catherine, but she's also extremely controlling. And Peter, like I said, is extremely odd, a very, very odd boy. And not surprisingly, because he has been controlled by his aunt. He's been taken away from his home country and sort of just transplanted here. Like, you're going to become the new monarch when I die because I've had no children, but I'm not going to prepare you for that in any way. And so he sort of, he finds these other outlets, which, you know, is this obsession with the Prussian army, which is awkward because they're at war with Prussia. And he's obsessed with Frederick, who is the the monarch of Prussia, uh, and he wants to be just like him. And yet, you know, like Elizabeth is not going like, hmm, maybe this could be a problem. Uh, she's just like, no, like, whatever, just stay in your quarters. You're not allowed to leave your room. Yeah. And so she does. She confines Catherine and Peter, which, you know, is obviously incredibly damaging. Their, their life is controlled in every moment in every way by uh, Elizabeth and it's 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 quite upsetting to think about these like young people and how stifled their development is Catherine really finds um solace in books and in learning and and that comes to help her later so her husband Peter actually ascends the throne and then he becomes vengeful against her you know she's so well liked and nobody likes Peter cuz he's nuts and so he starts so he takes on you know it's not uncommon to have lovers but he takes on this lover who he just completely flaunts the fact that he wants to marry her so like he's like trying to get Catherine to go to a convent so he can marry this other woman. At this point, Catherine has already had a child. And uh, this is kind of forced by Elizabeth when she's still alive, because it's clear that Peter has no sexual interest in Catherine. Elizabeth is like, okay, then we've, we've got to find you a lover because we need to like secure the monarchy. So is this whole like just these things that, you know, you think that would be really a problem if like, you know, your successor had no no actual relation to you, but it's just, it's fine. It's all good. Go have a lover, get pregnant. We'll say that, you know, they're the heir to the throne. It's fine. <laughs> Very odd. And all of this, like, taking on lovers is, like, fully accepted. And then, yeah, and then we have Catherine overthrows her husband and accedes the throne. So she's definitely a very, very powerful woman and charismatic all of these people who want to put her on the throne because, again, Peter is nuts and she is very level-headed and she wants great things for Russia. There is this whole period where, you know, she she takes on Enlightenment thinking and she does so much to try to improve Russia's situation, creating hospitals, 
creating schools. When she's reigning, there is a plague. She goes through all of these really difficult times. And she actually, there's this whole section on um, immunization, which was really interesting. She's in, in Russia. She's like, you know what, do it to me. And then everyone else will follow. But of course, you still get people who are protesting, which is very interesting. There's this whole incident where people don't want to get immunized. They think that's bad. And they think it's better to go kiss this big religious statue and that's going to fix them. But of course, this thing that they're kissing becomes this like wide spreader. And then this priest was like, well, I'll take it down because I know it's bad and I'm a priest, so they won't be mad at me. And then they the mob murders him. Um, and she has to deal with all of this as monarch. Her later life is, is very depressing uh, because she essentially puts her son through all of the messed up things that she and Peter went through. And he very much becomes a similar figure to Peter, in no part due to her treating him the way that Elizabeth treated her. Um, so it's very interesting just the way she's this she's this lionized figure, but she's obviously an end just ends justifies the means. Um, you know, she she says she doesn't want war, uh, but then she starts a war to Okay, I've got one more anecdote from the book um, that was really, really interested me. She starts this war in Poland because she's upset that um, I think it's the Protestants maybe who are are being religiously oppressed, which is like, great. Yeah, that's fair. We should you should try to save them. But then like ends up creating this giant war with Turkey and they like decide to split up Poland and she puts her ex on the throne in Poland because he's like it's a king but it's it's like a um an elected king and uh he's like oh like babe I want to get back together like you know I loved being with you like let's do it and she's like no I need you to be the king of Poland sorry no choice this or like exile <laughs> like that's just the way she does uh she has absolute power and she uses it just a fascinating fascinating figure and throughout we learn about Diderot and there's a really great section on serfdom and and all of these things of the time woven around the story of Catherine the Great. And for me, that is how I learn history. I learn it through uh, figures, through people and biography. And like I said, you know, despite this being like from an academic writer, it's it's very accessible despite lacking or, or maybe because it's lacking that that critical eye so for me it was an it's an opportunity to have more I just I just want to fill in all of my gaps now um, that I have around this history and around this person highly recommended if you watched the great and you were interested in the time because that now you can feel superior and and point out all of the problems definitely if you're interested in monarchy uh if you do kind of gravitate the words the like those people are really messed up and i enjoy reading about it you are gonna get some gems here they are odd 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 circumstances and it, it's definitely spurred me on to to wanting to read some more history. If anybody has recommendations for, you know, authors who make make history accessible and palatable, I'm really, really looking forward to to some more niche uh, nonfiction. So thanks for uh, bringing this to us, Mark. Thank you, Fiona. Definitely sounds like a very interesting kind of like complex of characters and the interweaving of their lives with history and things like that. So that's I always also agree that history becomes a lot more interesting when you learn about it through people rather than just a series of dates and events and things like that. So it's definitely 
uh, an interesting book to pick up. So then I think we just have Kareen left for today. So what do you have for us today, Kareen? All right. So I have a nonfiction book that is very niche in the same way that I feel like everyone here has chosen a book that is very them about a subject that interests them. I have also chosen two of my passions to put together. So my roommate and I have what could be described as a worrying amount of knowledge about poison. As soon as we see on a TV show, it's the smell of bitter almonds. No, of course, we know what that is. (laughs) Are they uh, red in the face and gasping for air? Oh, that's obviously strychnine. (laughs) Oh, thallium, the poisoner's poison, the sparkling queen of poisons. Uh, That's when your hair starts falling out. According to our other roommate, we have a worrying amount of knowledge about poisons, how to use them, how they are detected. And that is in no small part because we are huge devotees of Agatha Christie. We have seen all of the Poirot, all of the Marple. And although the Queen of Crime utilizes a variety of ways to eliminate her characters, one of her very favorite, almost pet methods is poison. She uses some that are very recognizable, cyanide, strychnine, to some that are a little bit more esoteric. And as you go through her works, you realize that even though she was working in a time before Google, her knowledge of poisons is also worryingly accurate. The way that she describes it, the minute details about how much you actually need to poison someone are all accurate. And that is because Agatha Christie herself worked in an apothecary, so a pharmacy before then, and actually made poisons and medicine herself before she became an author. This is all detailed in what is a delightfully niche book for a Christie lover and a poison appreciator. It is the book A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie by Catherine Harkup. Inside, she goes through, I believe, 18 of the most interesting poisons that Christie uses. She goes through the story of how it was discovered, because someone's got to be the first one to be offed by it. She goes through the details of how it interacts with the human body and kills people, which is fascinating because a lot of these poisons, for example, digitalis, can be used as a medicine to treat heart conditions. But if you take too much of it, then you have killed great aunt Mildred and inherited her fortune. I also really enjoyed learning a little bit more about where these poisons come from. Did you know that strychnine was a plant? It's a plant, people. Thallium is just like powdered rocks. And it can also be used to treat ringworm. Now you know. She also details whether there is an anecdote. So if you happen to feel that your husband is out to get you and slips you a little something before bedtime and you start feeling kind of ill, you can quickly leaf through this valuable resource and find out whether you're going to make it or not. 
The book also details real-life cases of when these poisons were used, so there's a little bit of a true crime element. And it also describes the book in which Agatha Christie uses this poison and how it is used in the novels. I believe that one of my favorite was a poison that I didn't know very much about, which is Esserine. And in it, she shares a uh, an anecdote from missionaries writing in West Africa where they used to have the ordeal bean of old Calabar. Now, because this is missionaries writing about Africa, you can take it with a grain of salt. However, this was poison used as a trial method. So if someone was accused of murder or theft, they would be given either a glass or a bowl of calabar beans. These, of course, being extremely poisonous. If you ate the beans and survived, you were obviously innocent. If you ate the beans and perished, well, you were guilty and the execution was conveniently taken care of. However, there is fascinating science behind this in that if you were guilty, you are likely to chew them more slowly. You would take small sips, hoping for maybe a reprieve, maybe that there would be a last-minute piece of evidence that would come in, and the poison would then be able to slowly seep into your system and kill you. However, if you were innocent and you knew you were innocent, you would take the jar of beans, gulp it down in one go, and the beans would remain whole in your system, making it harder to digest them all at once, as well as because it would be all at one time, your system getting all this poison, you'd likely throw up and that would save you. So probably not going to be implemented as an alternative way, uh, but very, very interesting. So this is a fascinating look at chemistry, at history, at true crime of uh, Christie's literary prowess. One of my other favorite parts of this book is at the back, there is an appendix, who doesn't love an appendix, which goes over all of Agatha Christie's books and short stories and details the method of murder. So you can go through and see all of the very curious and interesting ways that Christie dispatched her characters over the year, some of them a little bit more outlandish than others. So if you are a Christie fan, if you are interested in true crime, but looking at it from more of a historical and chemical point of view, then you could absolutely pick up this very fun read. A is for arsenic. Even if you feel like you might know all the things about poison, there might be a few things that will surprise you. Thank you, Corrine. So now we know if we ever have any poison control concerns, we know who to, to ask questions about. I'd like to thank all of my book friends today who are sharing some very interesting nonfiction reads with us. Virginia, Fiona, Corrine, I'm Mark. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again another time. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank you.